Welcome to the Tangled Mind podcast with me, Michael Bailey Brown. On this show, we talk about mental health. We talk about the day-to-day life challenges that we all come across. And we talk about them with guests from all around the world. This show is proudly sponsored by Born Again Clothing, a brand new streetwear brand that defines the definition of streetwear, offering their customers the highest grade and quality of clothing that has eco-friendly benefits towards their clothing. When you wear their brand, all eyes are on you. Now, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Tangled Mind podcast. Um, on this week's show, uh, I've got somebody on that I'm I, I quite happily said I'm honoured to have them on. Um, after hearing but reading about the story, hearing them on other podcasts and things like that, I, I've wanted to get them on for a while. Um, it was just plucking up the courage to message and see if whether they come on, and here they are. Um, it's Craig Harrison, um, who is a British sniper. He is um, an author of his own book, The Longest Kill. Um, He's openly spoke about his own mental health, uh, his PTSD and depression. um, And I just thought people need to hear from his point of view, especially being in the military, because not many people seem to open up when they've left the army about how it does affect them. So, obviously, Craig, thank you for obviously coming on. And first things first, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. No, no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure all mine. So, let's let's go back to literally the start of Craig Harrison in when he was a kid. So, obviously, you you was a sniper in the army. Is that something that you've you've always wanted to do since you've grown up? Have you had for other family members that have been in the military, how did it all now, start? Yeah, all my family were in the RAF, yeah. so um, we had a sort of like a, a military sort of background yeah. um, when we were younger. My 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 father was in the RAF, my mum was, and also my grandfather was as well. So, um, but I wanted to be a farrier uh, when I was younger because I rode horses when I was little. Yeah. So I wanted to be a farrier, and there was no sort of like um, farriers, civilian-wise, taking on apprenticeships. So the only thing I could think of is join the Household Cavalry and see if I can get a trade, you know, through the Household Cavalry and uh, see where it goes from there. So that's originally why I joined the Household Cavalry, not to become a sniper, uh, to become a farrier, really. A bit different, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Michael Quantum Leap, yeah. I actually went... But... I've got three children, my eldest 10, but just before I found out I was having my eldest, I went in through all like the, um, in, I'm from Nottingham and in, in Nottingham city centre, they had one of the, um, basically like a shop where you could go in and essentially sign up and join the, any, any of the militaries. And I, I went to join the RAF and it was literally, as I was about to get through to sign in and everything, I then found out I was going to be an adult. I was like, 
do I really want to be going away and staying away from and not seeing yeah. the little and grow up? Which made me back out. And sometimes I might, you know, I wish I'd carried on. But then mm. obviously things happen for a reason. They do, they do. And family comes first, mate. And especially Absolutely. now I realise what the army's about and armed forces are about and how they look after their veterans. You'd made a good choice about um, family first, mate. So obviously during um, your time in the military then, so obviously your tours, where did you tour? Um, I did Bosnia, Kosovo and um, Iraq and Afghanistan. And while you were out there, how did that, obviously affects like your family and you, your wife and uh, have you got children? No, I have got two no. daughters yeah. um, who, um, through my wife. Yeah. Um, but um, they, well, I didn't meet my wife until I went to Iraq, the first Iraq war. Um, but um, I did Bosnia and Kosovo when I was a single lad. So, I, you know, I just got on with the job and got on with it really. And then I met my wife when I came uh, back from the first Iraq war. Yeah. And then I did another three more tours after that. And, and with that side of it, so obviously being away from the family, would you say that was the, the hardest thing to deal with while you were out there? But obviously you know, from what I've listened to of your other uh, your videos and things like that, you've said about obviously how the, the actual missions, some of the missions were ter- like, terrifying essentially and we'll go come into that in a minute but would you say one of the hardest things for you was being away from obviously your wife more so during the 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 tours after you'd met her because obviously although you're with her you're obviously still doing your work yeah my wife's a strong woman and um, she didn't give me any reason not to doubt how strong we were as a marriage so I was quite confident going on tour to Iraq and Afghanistan with a clear mind, you know, because the last thing you want is to have something niggling in the back of your brain that, you know, your marriage isn't strong enough. And that's what you don't want. You want to go with a clear mind. And I was lucky enough to do that because my wife is a strong woman. Uh, so it's, and it's, I think it's massively important to have that support network back at home, regardless what situation you're in, obviously you in the military, but always have that strong support network, whether it's your wife, your parents, or brothers, sisters, yeah, friends. Yeah. So, coming to the military then, so mission-wise, um, what would you have said was the, the hard, not the hardest mission, but the hardest mission, if that makes sense, for, for that you experienced? Because obviously you, you toured in quite, you've done quite a few tours in different places, is there anything that sticks out into your mind? You're like, but yeah, that was tough. Yeah, it's got to be. Um, first of all, you know, you think Iraq's hard, and you know, you think you come off that, and you think, fucking hell, that was a hard tour, you know. And you get some hard missions, and then, and then you go on to do Afghan, and you think that's even harder, you know. And um, yeah, there is some missions in my mind, you know, that I think fucking I was lucky to get out of that one. That was a lucky scrape, you know, and uh, you sort of of put it to the back of your mind because if you let it bother you, it'll bother you for the next mission and the mission off that and the mission off that. You need to stay positive all the time, even though there were close misses, 
you know, to your life, you need to stay positive in yourself to you have enough confidence to do the next mission. And you'd be wrong if you weren't scared. You know, if I was scared going into some missions and if I wasn't, I wouldn't be human, you know. Well, like they say, it's you wouldn't, nobody would be human if they weren't scared no. of, scared of some, something. Um, yeah. Well, while you're out there, obviously, and you, you, what are your, when, when you do, obviously, I've done my research and read up about you and re- listened to some of your stories and things like that. And obviously, you're, the, 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 the first thing you see when you type Craig Harrison in and you're looking into it is obviously your book. The longest kill, and it obviously. Then you look at the rankings, and you're like third from the top of the world world record. Talk, talk to us a little bit about obviously that day. That that day, obviously, I, I know in the previous videos and of the people that I spoke to have sat there and I've like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've heard about him. I've heard about him. Tell us a little bit about that day from uh, that obviously the longest kill happened in uh, for you. So basically, it, it was a winter tour. So it was a perfect winter morning. And our job was to um, find some high ground and give support for a patrol going into a village. And um, so I positioned myself on top of a high ground. Now, everyone thinks I was laying down doing this shot, but I wasn't. I was stood up um, against a compound wall. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> against a compound wall. And um, I had good eyes on the village. I could see Taliban running around, queuing up an attack to wait for the patrol to come into a kill zone. Now, a kill zone is um, where it's a zone of land where you've got no escape or no cover, you know. And as soon as that patrol goes into that kill zone, the Taliban will open up and cause max damage and destruction. So um, I was scanning all my arcs, you know, left and right to make sure that the patrol was safe to go in and I had uh, an interpreter with me and the interpreter was tuned in with a radio called ICOM chatter. Now it's a radio is tuned into the Taliban frequency so you could listen to what they're saying all the time. And they were getting orchestrated by somebody and I couldn't work it out where it's from. And in the distance I saw a glint um, and I looked through my scope and I could see an antenna. And, and there was one guy on top of a compound wall and with a radio. So I took nine shots. And what I did, I bracketed. So I fired one shot. I saw where it landed. And then I fired another shot, then another shot. And each shot was getting further and further to the, his location. And then my ninth shot, I hit the compound wall. And um, the ICOM chatter went dead then. And uh, the only voice over the ICOM was the guy which I was shooting at, saying to the Taliban, I can't direct you anymore. I'm getting shot at from somewhere. And that place was for me, basically. Well, anyway, the the patrol went into the village and a mass firefight happened. Um, I was given support, um, taking, um, like, taking shots, taking out the Taliban. And then um, the patrol had to get extracted out because they were taking casualties. They were getting heavily overrun by the Taliban. and But they had to go for the kill zone again. So what I'd done, I moved my lads in front in three wagons. I told them to push down into the kill zone to make a, like, a buffer between the patrol and the Taliban and open fire into the village. Yeah. 
well, I did that, that everything was fine. And the patrol got extracted out. And then I noticed somebody from my left side, sorry, my right side, um, by a water pump. And what he had done, he had knocked the water pump off and he had flooded the irrigation fields. So all my vehicles now were bogged in. They couldn't go anywhere. So as I told them to extract out, they were just wheel spinning in the mud because the sand just turns to mud. Yeah. And then they started getting shot at from somewhere. So I checked all my fire positions where they, you know, I was engaging targets that morning and um, I couldn't see anything. And the only place I didn't check is where I shot earlier on that morning at the compound. And there were two guys on the ground with a PKM machine gun, which is a belt fed Russian machine gun. And, um, so I knew where I was aiming because I aimed there in the morning. So I fired my first shot and I saw it hit the compound wall. I fired my second shot and the, one of the guys stood up and I hit him in the chest and he fell backwards. And then I fired my third shot. And as I fired my third shot, I moved my rifle across on the wall and fired my fourth shot. So now I've got two bullets in the air at the same time. And the third one missed. And as the third one missed, he stood up and the fourth one hit him in the side. And then um, he fell backwards. And the only reason I knew why I hit him is because we had to retrieve the weapon. So we went up to see the bodies and the weapon was already gone, but the bodies were still there. And an Apache helicopter GPSed it from my location at 2,475 metres. So it was just over a mile and a half. When you say it like that, like, just over a mile and a half, you sit there yeah. and you think... And my weapon system yeah. only goes 1,500 metres, so it's not designed to go that far. Um, did, did, well, you, know when, you know at that point when you were like, right, I need to take this shot, was it a case of you were in that mindset of, I need to take this shot, if I can get it there? Or did what did you, from obviously being a sniper, I know, well, I don't know, but I from what I've heard people say and things like that, I know it's a lot of work. It's not just a case of pointing, get, getting aim and taking, pulling the trigger. No. Also, obviously, your wind speed, you've got yeah. uh, obviously all sorts to take into consideration. Did you know that you could get it there? Or was it a case of, well, look at the draw sort of thing? Exactly. Luck of the draw, mate, you know, and it took me nine shots to get there in the morning. So I knew where my point of aim would be. And to get it there three, four more times was just luck. You know, it, it, I, my my thing was to scare them, not to hit them. But I managed to hit them. So I called it a fluke. But everyone said, yeah, but you've done it twice. And I said, it was two flukes then, in it? You know, <laughs> so it's the some of the stuff that you see, and it's one of the things I was going to ask you. Like, you see, I, I I watch all of the like I watch quite a lot of films about obviously like the war. Um, one of my favorite, one of my personal favorite films is American Sniper. Um, and then you've got the, this. It's the other one. Um, Will Smith is it Gemini Man or something like that. And he takes the shot and he's to a moving train and I sat there and I'm thinking, you've got absolutely no chance. The train's doing like 200 mile an hour. Surely yeah, that's not yeah. possible. That's Hollywood for you. Yeah, and you yeah. sit there and you're like, why would they make it? They need to, It needs to be more realistic than yeah. somebody sat on a hill, clearly miles and miles away, shooting at a 200 mile an hour train and it gets them. 
not a yeah. chance. Not but, a chance. That's Hollywood for you. Exactly. They like to sugarcoat things. Um, yeah, they do. So, obviously, with that side of it, obviously, you got... You obviously broke the world record. When did you actually find out that you broke the world record? Because, obviously, you're in the, in the middle of a battlefield... It's not something that's just going to quickly. Oh, you, by the way, you you broke a world record. I, I didn't know there was even a world record for the longest shot. Did you know? You know? Uh, not at all. Um, and it happened when I came back to England and we had our medals parade. And um, there's a freelance journalist walking around on the parade, and um, he asked me a question, and I wanted to know that these stories would get censored. You know, because my lads saw quite a lot of action and it would have got censored because what happens, your story then goes to London District Media Ops and then it gets censored. Your name gets taken out, this gets taken out, this gets taken out. And then it can go to the mainstream papers like the Sun and the Mirror and things like that. And so I felt quite confident in talking to this journalist about what I achieved. And I just said my longest shot that I'd done was 2,475 metres. And it got backed up by GPS. And I had witnesses as well that to say that I achieved that shot. And then before I knew it, on the Sunday, my medals played on the Friday. Mm-hmm. And on the Sunday, it was in the papers. And it was just me, my name, my wife's name, my daughter's name, where I lived, where I was born. And it happened that the story never got censored by London District Media Ops. And it went straight to print. So... And then we start getting death threats, you know, our fundamentalists in England wanted to kidnap me, want to cut my head off for what I achieved in Afghanistan. So that must be terrifying, especially because obviously they, like you say, they should have it should have all been centred and no names, no addresses, no nothing. But yet, two days like two days after you've been to- knowing that it should have been, you're seeing your name and you. you, you like you say, your daughter's names, your wife's it's in the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, my wife's. My wife said I've got a bad feeling about this when she saw it, and everyone was telling her, "No, let him enjoy the limelight. Let him enjoy the limelight. He deserves it. You know, he's achieved something like he's achieved the world record and stuff like that." And my wife was right. You know, she was right to feel like that because, you know, the death threat started. You know, and we had to go and hide him for three years. Three years. Wow. Three years, yeah. Have you, I'm assuming you've since gone back to where reality. You, where, where, yeah. reality and where, obviously, yeah, your home and everything like that since. Well, I've, I've, never, been, I've never been home since to my yeah. original location, no. Wow. But um, I work now and, um, you know, I've got a job and we yeah. just get on with it, really. That's a lot to take in, isn't it, really? <laughs> So, obviously, coming on to what you now then, um, obviously your 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 mental health obviously is a massive thing anyway, and it's something that in men isn't tend doesn't get tend to be spoken about enough, in my opinion. Um, I, I suffer from my dad. My dad's got BPD. Um, was it the military that? St- like when your mental health started is it because of things you've seen in in the obviously in the battlefield tell tell me a little bit about that yeah yeah it's from 
the day I got blown up in Afghan, I got blown up on the 14th of December at half past four on Memory Clearer's Day. I got blown up by a 30 kilo anti-tank mine. You know, my driver lost his legs. You know, uh, I broke my arms. I got a brain injury. And the day that explosion happened is the day in my head PTSD started from all the tours that I'd done. I couldn't stop all these emotions coming in. I could not stop them. No matter how I ignored it, I just couldn't stop it. Every box that I put my memories in to ignore it and just get on with life shattered. Everything was shattered. And I didn't feel right in myself, you know, but I thought I was doing all right um, as a person, as a soldier. But my wife noticed it first, you know, my moods, being a loner, um, getting aggravated all the time, depressed all the time, crying all the time. And I just ignored it for such a long period of time. And then the army noticed it. And that's when the army noticed it. When they started noticing it, I got kicked out of the army for um, complex PTSD, uh, brain injury and hip problems as well. And how long... Was that after that you obviously got kicked out of the army from the or from obviously the explosion? Uh, probably. Then what they do, they put you in a wounded soldier's sort of clinic, and you get like um, an officer attached to you, and he looks after your personal effects like your pension, make sure you're getting treated right when you moved into civilian street. Um, so it probably took a year um, to finally leave the army but it took me about half an hour to get kicked out you know so 23 years and kicked out in half an hour you know and the aftercare was appalling you know and doesn't matter who you go and see or what you go and do uh, your if your PTSD is complex or you've got mental health issues the army does not support you and these charities do not support you either you know these military charities they're I've tried all of them and they only give you six sittings or eight sittings of mental health. And apparently you're cured then. And then you can reapply in six months time. But in that six month time, you could be dangling from a tree, you know, so they've got no, they don't the thing, care. The thing is, is as brutal and as shitty as it sounds, it's true. Uh, they, it they, true. They, they, there's the amount of, because you're not the first person that I've heard say that either. That the the aftercare of when you've left the the, the any sort of military is is appalling, um, and and like one of the biggest things that you you see in in our country is the home uh, veterans that are homeless as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and they're just right. That's it. You're out. You do, do what you need to do. Yeah. It's, it's like it's like you just got you've spent so many years like well like you twenty odd years uh, fighting for the country and and like yeah fighting for for us but yet it once it's all done it, it's like it doesn't matter when it it does everyone matters yeah sure it does you think of the first world war shell shock is a was PTSD and shell shock was a big thing in the first world war and they used to get shot for cowardism. You know, and the army used to shoot and the officer, if they didn't go over the top, used to shoot them, you know, and then it cascaded down to the first, second world war, 
you know, and then obviously onto more conflicts through the ages and PTSD got more understood. And don't get me wrong, people are understanding it better now, but it's too late. You know, people are injured. There's no conflicts going on at the moment, you know, and people are suffering. And it takes me to sit there on my high horse and scream out loud, yes, fucking talk talk about mental health talk about your fucking problems you know even if because you're a bloke it doesn't mean you you know you're gonna not man up and get on with it you need to talk about your problems you know and once you start talking and that door's open you know it, it opens many doors but the army doesn't do that the army doesn't do that or it doesn't give you that chance to do that i was listening to something today actually and this morning you as you, as you do, I'm sat there. I'm just having a flip through Instagram or, or Facebook or one of the two, and there was a, a clip on there, and it was it was uh, somebody in the military. I think he was in uh, America though, um, and he, he said about somebody asked what sh- what what helps you get party, what what helps you move to uh, move on to get to where you need to be. And he, he he said a quote, and it was basically out of a kid's book by from, from what he said. Um, and it was the little boy said to the horse that he he doesn't he can't he can't go any further. And the, the horse basically said to the guy, uh, the little boy, "Do you know what your next step is?" The little boy responds, "Yes." Then take it, take that next step because that next step is then going to lead to the next step. And it, it's the same with it is true because with mental health. Once you took that first step to letting somebody know, look, something's not fucking right here. Uh, I need, I need help. That it's only from that point that you're only ever going to get somewhere. The amount of people that I spoke to while I've been doing this podcast and before we're obviously dealing with my dad's depression as I've grown up from six years old up until well, even now he's still has his episodes of his BPD flaring up. Um, Even now, people are still bottling things up and don't feel like they can talk, and that stigma needs stopping. That stigma needs to just go. But unfortunately, I don't think it ever will. The trouble is, it's talking to the right people that are listening. Yeah. You know, if you talk to somebody and you feel they're not listening, you're going to bottle up even more because you feel that person's, what's the point? What's the point of fucking talking? You know, it's like my Instagram. I answer every single person on my Instagram. Yeah. If they've got mental health issues, I tell them, talk to me. You know, I've, I've got mental health issues. I can talk as well. And the amount of people that I reach out to me, you know, and I feel I'm doing good for it, you know, yeah. even to reach out and say, Look, I'm, I understand, mate. I know where you're coming from, mate. You know, I agree because it's obviously it's while I've been doing this, um, I also during COVID, I did like um, on Zoom, I did a, a like a basically a bit of a peer to peer support group where everybody got on and we we're all just chatting. And for me, I never realized that I suffer like struggle as much as I do until I started talking to other people. And doing this and being able to meet people like yourself and the other guests that I've had on, this has been my sort of support mechanism. This has been yeah. my way of going, listening to other people and get their 
stories across that can help others, I've sat back and I've gone, fucking hell, that sounds like me. Like, yeah. am I, am I, is that what I'm, is that what's going on? Because, and then I've then sent been to the doctors, GPs, and obviously you get your bags of medication and stuff, but at the same time, like it's like it's coming back to having that support network and somebody that can understand you and is willing to, like you say, sit and listen, really. Yeah, that's what you need. And that helps. That one person will help you, you know. What one person needs to find out. What's you what's the biggest piece of advice you would give somebody or the best place uh for from your experience to reach out to? Family, family, you know, they will understand why, you know, like I speak to my wife, I reach out to her and, and then she goes, fucking hell, is that why you're feeling like that? You know, and then I speak to her, I cry in front of her, I break down, you know, because I suffer from suicidal ideation. I think about it all the time and it's, it's draining and I feel sad all the time, fucking so sad you know, and just not happy. And when my wife turns around and she goes, I feel lonely as well, you know, that sort of gives you a good kick up the arse to think, well, I need to talk more. And, yeah, family will talk. As soon as the family understands why you're being like you are, you know, it's like a weight lifted off your shoulders. I can say, go and see your GP. Go see your GP and talk to them. But then they put you on to the mental health hospitals but the know, problem, and they don't and they don't work they don't work no and the problem with that in and you, you might agree with me you might disagree but gps in my opinion when it comes to mental health are not the right people to talk to because they are not trained in mental health and no. it's like when i spoke when i took the step and went do you know what i do need to actually speak to the doctor i spoke to the gp and I phoned up to make an appointment, wanting to actually go and speak to them. And he, he had a, a three or four minute phone call and he went, okay, you can go pick your medication up tomorrow. I'm like, is that it? Is that all that yeah. happens? Yeah. And he, I was like, know, he's literally just told me that I just need to take these and take them for four weeks and you should be all right. It's just a sausage factory, mate. Do yeah. you know what I mean? You're in there, you do it, you pump me for the pills. Hopefully the pills will make you docile as fuck <laughs> so you're not a problem to the society of life. You know, that's exactly what it is. Joking, it? Um, so, two, two, two last things to, before we finish then. So, one of the things that I think is fucking amazing what you're doing is your Maverick Survival School. Yeah. And it's something that Obviously, I keep seeing coming up on my news, uh, news feed that you like videos. You put one out, I think it was today or yesterday, <clears throat> of you setting your camp up and, do, and doing some teaching. What what made you start that? Because I think it's amazing. Um, I love bushcraft and I've been into it for a long period of time. Even when I was serving in the army, I've always been into my bushcraft. And I wanted to give something back to people with mental health, you know? to escape into a wood and forget about everything for that short period of time, you know, could save somebody's life. 
And that's what I do. People with mental health, PTSD, veterans, it could be army or it could be civilian. It doesn't really matter with me, you know. Um, for instance, I I took a lady this week, last weekend, and she had severe mental health issues. And she said it's the first time she slept without medication. Wow. First time she slept without medication. And she said she's never always relied on stuff to help her sleep. And she slept two nights flat out, you know, with the woods, everything, and the teaching, the learning she enjoyed and everything. And she's coming down again because she learned so much and she want, and because she slept so well, she wants to experience it again, you know, and that makes me happy that I'm giving back to people and I don't get paid for it. I do it off my own back. You know, if they want to pay, they pay, but they don't have to, if they can't afford it, come down and experience it, you know, and that's what I, that's what I like to do. I think it is, like I said, I think it's amazing. And just coming back to that, it's like that lady, first time being able to sleep without medication. <clears throat> there is something about being outdoors and being, it, it, it sounds daft saying it, but like being able to be outdoors and the different noises and just like hearing the birds and the, the smell of like yeah. the, the greenery and everything it's it's relaxing it's like yeah. i for one i cannot regardless whether it's middle of winter snowing i i cannot go to bed without that window being open yeah, yeah. I, I just can't do it and no i think it's amazing so what what's next for what's next for craig um more mental health stuff putting the putting the word out there helping more people Hopefully Maverick School will get bigger and bigger, you know, take more people uh, with mental health issues and then just just giving back to veterans and people with mental health, just giving back to them because I think they've had a rough end of the stick, you know, and I think not enough people understand. And when they come down, they understand where where I'm coming from, and I understand where they're coming from as well. So yeah, to get to get Maverick bigger and to get the word out there more. Well, for me and all of my listeners, uh, I just want to say obviously a massive thank you to you for coming on and sharing your journey, and also a massive thank you for obviously fighting for our country and, and doing what you've done. Um, it's, it's an honour to have you on here um, and keep in touch. Yeah, I will do, mate. It's a yeah. pleasure being on your podcast. Thank you. No, you're more than welcome.